If you'll make your way to the book of Hebrews, we've come to about the middle of chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. Let's seek the Lord's aid as we come to His Word. Father, we have sung Your Word, we have read it together today. And we look now to this opportunity to consider the text before us with more care and pray that you would direct us to understand what has been revealed, that the Holy Spirit would be working among us to teach and instruct us and help us to continue to grow in the faith. We pray for those who know not Christ in a saving way and pray that you draw them to the light of Christ today according to your will and according to your purposes. May we all have ears to hear. May you deepen and grow us for the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Each year, over half a million people complete a marathon somewhere in the United States. I'm confident not a single one of those has ever finished that race and said, wow, that was pretty easy. That went a little bit easier than I thought. When they uh, lace up their shoes to run a 26.2 mile race, every one of them knows they're in for quite an ordeal. A daunting task. Completing a marathon requires perseverance through a host of difficulties and hindrances. Some of these impediments are internal, deal with the body. Others are external, what they're facing in that race. For instance, marathon runners speak of hitting the wall. Uh, That is reaching a point where the body begins to shut down and is just screaming at you to stop. The only thing possible here is to stop. Or it may be external. Boston Marathon's infamous Heartbreak Hill, for instance. It's a great name, isn't it? A, A daunting external challenge. It comes at between mile 20 and 21 of the 26 mile race, and it's an incline that is certain to discourage and weary runners. But some of the seasoned Boston Marathon runners say it's not the hill, it's not Heartbreak Hill, it's the other side of the hill that's actually harder, as you have to put on the brakes at that point, and you're pounding your legs, and they become numb as you go down the hill. Many challenges, and this cemetery mile, as that is called, and is often exhausted Uh, runners at that point. It is the ambition of many to complete the Boston Marathon, and it is the ambition of the rest of us to never try to do so. But what matters to all of God's people is that we complete the marathon of the Christian journey home. And that journey is fraught with spiritual heartbreak hills along the way. And cemetery miles, stormy weather, exhaustion, and painful injuries, so to speak. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, we have that running theme described, helping us to understand the Christian life, where we read there in 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these who have gone before us, many of whom have suffered for the faith in chapter 11, 
in light of that heritage of faith, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's the theme, to run with endurance the race of the Christian life. And how do we do that? It is by looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. There was a joy of the Father's presence, and He labored to that point and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Think on Christ as you run this Christian race. Then remember chapter 12, verses 4-11. through 11. Go on to address the suffering that tempts us to doubt God. The difficulties of life that lead us to wonder, is He really there? And we have the assurance in verses 4-11 through that the trials of life for the believer are fatherly discipline. God is not lost, but He continues to work through the trials and the challenges of life to build us and to deepen our faith. Don't be discouraged at those heartaches and trials. And certainly don't be discouraged when there is persecution against your belief in Christ. The Father is using that to build your faith and your confidence. Continue to run. And so on the heels of that instruction, we come to verse 12 where we pick up with the word therefore that is based upon what has come before. It is a call to run the Christian race with courageous perseverance. Now these verses, I think, are pretty certain to prove very unimpressive if we fail to face the real possibility for any one of us to fall away from Christ and pull out of the Christian race. This is an ongoing concern. Yes, it's gloriously true, as we have sung, that it is Jesus who secures us in His hands, protects our salvation. It is in His care that we rest. But it is also true that Christ's persevering work is designed to work in tandem with our obedient fidelity to Christ. So writing to believers who are struggling to do that, if they were under some serious pressure, they had lost property, there were individuals who had been imprisoned, They were identified as these strange people who follow Christ. And it was, for many of them, very tempting to just stop. Stop following Christ. Stop facing this trial. They had, so to speak, hit the wall. And it was time to pull out of the race, it seemed to some. If we don't take that to heart ourselves, it will just seem like just some exhortations that are thinly knitted together here in this section. But it's true that God calls us to obedience and to respond to this race with endurance. So writing to these struggling believers, the author's words in these few verses are golden counsel to any believer who desires to complete the Christian race and enter into the joy of God's presence. How shall we approach the Christian life, especially when we struggle with spiritual lethargy, when we struggle with doubt in the midst of the daunting challenges and suffering that we face in a world so oriented against Christ and His grace? 
Well, the author says, first of all, shake off spiritual frailty. Shake off spiritual frailty. I think that summarizes here, chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Notice it here. In that context, he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. The author clearly here returns to the running analogy. Picturing a runner who grows weak, who hits the wall. The weary arms flop about like ropes from his shoulders. He can't even lift the arms to to help him run, but they're just flopping there by the side. The knees are about to buckle with weakness and cause the runner to fall. His body is so weak, he's in danger of turning an ankle, wrenching a knee, dislocating a hip. It's just, there, there's, a, there's a fog that is there. There's a weakness that is there that is so intense. Such weakness can easily influence then a runner to pull out of the race. Now, think about this. How does our Heavenly Father address that issue? How does God speak to us in that weakness? He coaches us to respond when we hit the wall in our Christian walk due to spiritual weakness and adversity to do what? Therefore, verse 12, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. There are people among you in the assembly who are weak in the faith. They're lame. Make sure there's no potholes. Straighten out the path. We could say it in our terminology, kind of says in so many words, buck up, soldier. Buck up and soldier on. Stay in the running lane, verse 13. Work together as a local church to help the weak avoid dislocating something on a pothole, straightening out the path and the like. Now there's a, a tremendous danger here in interpretation. And that's on the one hand, we can become imbalanced by saying, you can do this in your own strength. All you need to do is trust yourself, rely upon your own ingenuity. You can do this. We sang in exhortation to one another here today, no, he will hold me fast. It is not in us and in our strength. Such a reading ignores the rest of the book of Hebrews, let alone the New Testament. But there's, I think, an imbalance that takes place on the other side of it. The instruction of our Father is to lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. Some interpreters are quick to jump in here and say, well, you can't do that. You don't have the power to do that, but Jesus did that for you. So just rest in grace. There's some truth in that, perhaps, on some level. But the author of Hebrews has no problem saying that our salvation rests entirely in Christ crucified and risen. It is in what God has done that our salvation rests, not in our works. That's much the point of the book. And that same author does not hesitate to say, you need to shake off the spiritual weakness and run with courage. We must hold both in tandem. 
When we emphasize one over the other, we begin to fall into false teaching and we begin to live the Christian life foolishly, either in utter self-dependence or in, I'll just trust Jesus and let it all fall together in time. The two work together. It is all in Christ. It is all in His work. It is His death on the cross that accomplishes righteousness, a righteous standing for us and is the very source of our spiritual power. Having said that, the way in which God works is in tandem with our obedience. He is not dependent upon us, but He calls us to walk to buck up and soldier on. Let's do this. Let's move forward. You, you are weak. Seek strength. Seek courage. When a marathon runner hits the wall, the answer is found less in the body and more in the spirit. The body is screaming, stop now. But the inner man finds something deep within and yells back, no, stay the course. Keep going. You must finish the race. That spirit is placed there deep within the believer by the Spirit of God. And there is within us then, as we know Christ as Savior, this deep internal motivation to keep on moving toward Christ. And what the Father is counseling us here then is this. I mean, physically speaking, obviously you could push too far. You could collapse, you could die of a heart attack or something like that. But this is in the spiritual realm. Our Father counsels us and says, listen, here's the, here's the long and the short of it. Nothing you ever face is going to be too much. Whatever challenge comes spiritually, whatever weakness you sense deep within is the strength by my hand in your life to persevere. You can never come to the place where you say, okay, that's it, that's too much. That's too difficult. And we have in chapter 11, as well as today, with believers that we know, brothers and sisters in Christ throughout this world, who are being tortured with the demand that they relinquish their faith in Christ, that they turn from Him. And even to that point of torture, they continue on. So that deep reserve of power is there by the Spirit of God. So do not focus on your doubt. I mean, how, how do we counsel someone, if we could, who's running a race and saying, I've got to quit? It's mile 20 and I'm hitting Heartbreak Hill and I'm done. How do we counsel that? Do not focus on your doubts. Do not focus on your sin. Do not focus on your spiritual weakness or the intensity of the trials that you are suffering. But fix your gaze on Christ who stands at the finish line. The one who has suffered in your behalf the tortures of his execution to pay the penalty of your sin. Focus there. And ideally, we see in verse 13 that this happens in a local church that unites to level out the path. That's what's going on there. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. We're, from a Western individualized perspective, we're going to always think of that in terms of that's to me. That's written to me personally. And it is. But I think we have to see verse 13 is written to us as a church, as an assembly 
a community of faith. So that make straight paths for your feet, y'all, as they say in the South. I love that phrase. I wish we could use it more often. But y'all, all of you, work together to make straight paths for the lame. The lame are those that are struggling in weakness of faith. Don't put obstacles in front of them, certainly, but more than that, repair the road. Make it smooth and straight so that they can continue on in the faith. The local church is a place where the spiritually lame are to be healed, verse 13. We speak this way to one another as we renew our covenant, as some enter into covenant with us through um, testimony of faith. In our church covenant, we make this commitment to be that type of a body, one in which is seeking to make the path smooth in faith. That doesn't mean take away the obstacles and make it easy in that sense, but it means to take away the obstacles of sin and failure of one another. It speaks to a church that prays together, that God would, and may this be a prayer of ours, Eden Baptist Church, as we gather in small groups and pray together, as we pray at home for our church. May this be our prayer, that God would mold us into the kind of church that helps one another persevere in the faith with courageous zeal, despite the challenges that we face. That is uplifting and encouraging and edifying to continue on in the faith. Shake off spiritual frailty. That's directive number one. Secondly is strive for moral purity. These go together as we seek to run the Christian race with courage. To strive for moral purity. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Quick sideline here. Got to follow with me here. So I'm just going to lay out the structure of the passage. Just a few points of grammar for us. But notice that word strive for. Strive for peace. That also goes with holiness. So strive for peace and strive for holiness are the two commands. Now, as we get to verse 15, the English text makes this look like a third command, or like a a third command, strive going with the first two. See to it that, but literally it's a participle, which is seeing to it that. So the two commands are strive for peace, strive for holiness. Under holiness, it's seeing to it that, and then there are three phrases each of which starts in our English text with a that no. See to it that no. And you see the next that no, root of bitterness, and that no one is sexually immoral, verse 16. Hopefully that helps us just with the structure here. And the outline that I've provided here, a little deeper than normal, will help us with that. But first of all, we're to strive to be peacemakers. Now, we naturally interpret that as something like pursue peace with every individual you meet. Strive for peace with everyone. That would be clearly true. The Greek text would commend that. But I think the point is more seek peace along with everyone else. Not just with everybody individually, but along with the assembly, be a peace 
peace-seeking people. In other words, the local church is to be a peace-seeking cooperative. The importance of striving for peace as Christ's people is not some agenda that is hidden in the New Testament. This is emphasized again and again. We think of the words of our Savior, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Or the Apostle Paul to the Roman church, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Clearly, it's not always dependent on us, and it's not always possible, but wherever possible, be a peacemaker. So then, let us pursue what makes peace, for peace, and for mutual upbuilding. Notice the word here, pursue. Pursue that. Go after that. To be making peace. Ephesians 4 speaks of our need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is peace like a tie around us that pulls us together and holds us together. So it's a pervasive theme in Scripture. But notice here, back again in Hebrews 12, that peacemaking involves what? It involves labor. Strive. For peace. You agree with me? I, I think it's rather easy to be at peace with those who treat us well. People that we naturally like. People who are a joy to be around. Striving for peace is something we do with people with whom we disagree. Striving for peace is something we do with people who do not treat us well. With people who are hard to be around. Even people who dismiss or seem to despise us. That's where real peacemaking earns its wings, so to speak. Where it has real roots. When we labor for peace with such people, it is then that we start to get our hands dirty doing God's work as peacemakers. So real peacemaking starts when I choose not to respond in a way that permits relational trouble to fester, in a way that inflames animosity. I choose not to say that. I choose not to go there. I choose not to respond in such a way. Real peacemaking starts when we build on the reconciling work of Christ and the peace He purchased on the cross so as to broker peace in relationships where hostility would be natural. By His death on the cross, Jesus provided reconciliation between the sinner and God. He also purchased the capacity to be reconciled with our enemies. He died for us while we were His enemies. And so that reconciling foundation that is underneath all that we do allows us to not go to war with one another, not to foment animosity toward others. We display to the watching world that we are no different than they are if we live that way. If we're just stirring up war and we're continuing to argue and we dismiss those who disagree with us, we're just saying to the lost world, we're just like you. And there is no Savior. Oh, there is a Savior who reconciled Jew and Gentile, 
who reconciled sinner and God. And where that Christ is at work, we become peacemakers. Strive to be a peacemaker. Secondly, second half of verse 14 and following, it is strive for holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We see, first of all, the necessity of holiness. Holiness, what is it? It's, it's a life of moral purity and devotion to God in separation from the spirit of the age. Such a life of obedient devotion to God is, is utterly vital. Without it, we cannot enter into God's presence. Holiness is a gift from God, to be sure. But if we do not display that gift in active obedience, it is because we do not belong to a God who is holy. So the pursuit of holiness, the display of holiness in our lives, is utterly essential. Without it, we will suffer the worst sorrow a human being can know. And that is eternal separation from God. Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. A gift that is displayed. And so actively we're to pursue that. The necessity of holiness and the pursuit of holiness then in verse 15. Seeing to it, that is strive for holiness, seeing to it this way. Seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We have three phrases here. We'll pick up the first. To run to obtain God's grace. Verse 15. This is simply a different way of saying what the book has repeatedly stressed from its very start. Do not fall away from the living God. Obtain the grace of God is a positive way of saying don't stray from the living God. Do not turn away from the Lord who is the only necessary and eternal source of saving grace. The only way to grow in holiness then is to continue trusting in God and the good news of Jesus crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. Now notice, the command is again given to the local church. Together we are to fight for one another's persevering faith. This is why we act with corrective response when a member abandons the assembly, when we see signs of spiritual lethargy. We strive to correct for this very reason that someone would not fail to obtain God's grace. And this is why we must encourage one another to live holy lives, as again we say in our church covenant. Run to obtain God's grace. Secondly, avoid spiritual bitterness. So you have the, the that no phrases. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We have the second phrase here. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This root of bitterness can certainly be a, a bitter attitude that controls our hearts, but we tend to bring a psychologized sort of way of reading things again, and I, I think it's out of context here with Hebrews. But it's not just don't let bitterness control your soul. That's certainly true. You can find other texts. But where is he drawing from? And catch it earlier, we read it in Deuteronomy 29. 
That's the context. In Deuteronomy 29, the root of bitterness is not something deep inside that makes you bitter, but the root of bitterness is actually a person. The root of bitterness is one who begins to find the life of holiness distasteful and worldliness increasingly tasty. So the root of bitterness is a member of the assembly who is capable of influencing other members to turn from Christ and to thus be defiled. When a member of the assembly grows discouraged by the world's assaults against the faith, becomes hardened against the way of holiness, that member can become a source of bitter poison in the assembly. In my youth, I met some of those poisonous roots. Some of the people who talked to me, some of the peers who spoke to me after church and taught me sin. The bitter root that needs to be addressed wasn't addressed in my life. But I see it now. The doubt that was cast, the pursuit of sensuality, the training to do wrong. This can take place even within a faithful congregation of people. We need to be alert to it and aware of it. Not to crush those who disagree, but to be aware of negative influence that can draw us away from fidelity to Christ. A faithful local church will address that trouble when it arises, knowing what damage apostasy can do in a community of faith. Simply said, perseverance in the faith is a community project. And it is not a project in which we are harsh and crush people. We are seeking peace, but we are to be a community that is watchful of the bitter root of apostasy. And thirdly, I I think these are, I would say, I don't know what the author's thinking, but I think these are in some sense uh, random. Uh, I think they're thought through, but obviously many more could be added to these three. But the third that he brings up is, is immoral sensuality. We should run to obtain God's grace. That's, that's in our pursuit of holiness. In our pursuit of holiness, we should avoid spiritual bitterness in the assembly. Those who would mock and turn away from the living Christ. And we should avoid immoral sensuality. Verse 16. That no one is is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, the Old Testament only hints at Esau's sexual immorality. It's kind of interesting in that well before the New Testament, rabbinic and Hellenistic tradition was consistent in this indictment against Esau that he was earthy, sensual, driven by the flesh, and that that involved indeed sexual immorality. This worldliness is seen, not depicted in Scripture with sexual escapades, but rather with the more simple scene of Esau and his twin brother Jacob, where in his worldliness, Esau is willing to sell his birthright for soup. 
to satisfy his hunger in the moment. He's willing to sell his birthright. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but when we think of what the birthright was, it was the blessing of God. It was his place, so to speak, to lose that place of blessing in God's mercy to Isaac, his father. But Esau looked at his part in God's salvation program, looked at his place among the people of God as a firstborn son of promise, and he gave it away for a cheap meal. And that's apparently what he did in the bedroom as well. He gave it away for a cheap meal. So Esau epitomizes that person who chooses worldly, earthy, sensual pleasure over moral purity in fellowship with God. That's not to say that all earthly, sensual pleasure is evil. It is not. It is a gift of God, much of that. But we can wrongly pursue such pleasures. There's nothing wrong with sexuality. It's a gift of God. There's nothing wrong with a good soup. That's a gift of God too. And we should eat to His glory, rejoicing in the good soup. But, there's a place when the demand comes that I will be satisfied as I choose. With what I want. And at the heart of that sensuality is invariably sexual immorality. The Christian faith is not cold towards sexuality. As I've said, God created it. But God created sex to work within the confines of a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman for life. It's not what we hear in our culture, but let me say it again. Marriage is a covenantal relationship between one man, one woman for life in the bond of marriage. Now these narrow parameters assure that Christian sexual ethics have always been and will always be an away game in this world. We're never going to be in the majority. But we have only one choice. We can obey God by sexual fidelity in marriage or by joyful celibacy outside of marriage, and experience the joy that He intends for the married and for the unmarried together in unique ways. Or, we can pursue sexual experience outside of marriage and suffer the natural consequences of sin. It's one of the two. The pursuit of holiness, then, in part, is the pursuit of sexual fidelity to God's revealed Word. It is one biological passion that we give in sacrifice to God to be used as He designs, as He determines for the rest of our lives by His grace. There is failure, there is forgiveness, but there is also a very clear and narrow path. And God calls us to that path. The pursuit of holiness without which no one will see the Lord includes our sexual interests. It includes 
all of our sensual desires. To turn over what the flesh wants to the Lordship of Christ is the battle for holiness day by day in our Christian walk. And that battle can shift and change as the desires of our hearts change or the desires of our bodies change over time. But we live in a world that has utterly no category for what I've just been saying, don't we? If it feels good, do it. If you want it, it's right. God says, "Is I'm the creator, I love you, and there's a pathway. It's a narrow lane, but it is a pathway to joy. So avoid being like Esau. He says, verse 17, For you know that afterward, and here's the horror of it, Afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now some take this to mean that Esau found no way to convince Isaac to change his mind. That's true, but it's a really strange way of looking at the word repentance which is universally seen as something that is something I must do within, not something I get someone else to do. I don't get other people to repent. But we, within, we repent of our sins. So I think the more natural way to interpret repentance here is that Esau felt remorse for the negative consequences of his dismissal of God's blessing upon his life. Wow, that soup went down well when it was going down. Didn't last very long. And with it came the deep regret of, look what I've done. I've taken the blessing of God and I've said, never mind, I'm choosing this stew. There was a time then where Esau came to regret. And he could find no heart level of repentance for his sin. He bemoaned the consequences of his rejection of God's holy ways. He sorrowed over the loss, but he didn't sorrow over his sin, not in a redemptive way. And so the author says, don't become like Esau. Do not turn away from the living God, or you will end up in the place where your life is a train wreck, and you find nothing in your heart that permits you to repent. It just doesn't happen. I feel badly but I cannot see myself as a sinner violating God's law and to seek his forgiveness. It's a terrible place to come. And he's warning these who are thoughtful about pulling out of the faith, don't follow that pattern. Esau suffered one of the most horrifying sorrows in this life and the next. And that is the sorrow of regret that is shut off from the joy of repentance. Do not follow his example. Nurture a tender heart toward God which is willing to say, I was wrong. I have sinned. Forgive me. And what place does God have to forgive us in our sin? The place that He has to forgive us is we come back to it again. And that is at the cross which we've sung, at, sung about this morning. That is, we come to a place of repentance of sin and we can turn to the Christ who has paid the penalty of that sin. 
God doesn't just arbitrarily forgive us because we just ask Him to. There must be a price that is paid. There must be genuine justice that is achieved. And that justice comes as Jesus Christ bears the weight of every sin that you've committed and dies the penalty of those sins. So we come in repentant trust in Him that His death in my place pays the cost. And so when I ask God's forgiveness, He can forgive justly. If you've not embraced that truth, I would encourage you to come to it today. And you will find, as you reason through it, there is no other answer for God to be just and to justify sinners. He does not justify the good people. As the book of Romans teaches us, he justifies the ungodly and can do so because the price has been paid by Christ. But as we think through Hebrews chapter 12, we've got to come to the conclusion the Christian race is not for wimps. Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 make that abundantly clear. But we are never to despair. We are to reach deep within our hearts to find the strength that God alone can provide. We are to shake off the weakness of spiritual frailty and run with perseverance the race set before us. And I, I, I'm certain, I, I certainly speak to someone here today, you know in this there is a call for you. There is a call from God to shake off that spiritual lethargy to shake off that spiritual weakness and to revive again your interest in the Lord and His walk that He has laid out for us. If we're shaking off the spiritual frailty and we are persevering in the faith as we pursue holiness, if we're doing that, then we are actively pursuing that life of holiness. We can say, here's how I'm pursuing it. The distinctiveness of belonging to God, not this world, and the moral purity that that identification commends. If we're doing that, we're becoming peacemakers who are growing in holiness. We are more and more loving peace, not war. And it's a peace that is qualified by holiness. It's not a peace at all cost, but a peace that is built on purity. By God's grace, Eden Baptist Church, let us labor to become that church. Verse 13, a healing station for the spiritually discouraged, a mutual watch care cooperative. You know, that word, see to it there in verse 15, is a word that we use to describe pastor, shepherd. It is one who is an overseer of souls. That's what, by God's grace, we are becoming as an assembly. To rightly, graciously, redemptively watch over one another's soul for the glory of God. Let us run that race with perseverance. Let's pray together.
Lord, we need that aid as a church. And in the exhortations that we look at here today, very well known to us. Lord, I pray that we take to heart the reminder. I also pray that we take to heart any who are being called right now by your Spirit to repent, to change, to lay sin aside and to run the race with fresh vigor and focus on Christ. I pray for those who are seeking religious goodness and thereby seeking to please and to earn your favor by their own good works. I pray that you'd lodge deep into that heart, into those souls today. The question, how can God be just and the justifier of sinners? We as a church praise you as we have sung today of the cross and its redemptive work, the payment for sin, the justice that has been served. And yet the free forgiveness of sin and reconciliation that Christ's death provides for His people. Lord, we rejoice in that. And I pray that You would allow us to grow from this place to be people who shed off the spiritual lethargy and strive to be peacemakers who are pursuing moral purity in our lives. Aid us to that end, we pray in Christ's name.